0: Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Welcome to today's briefing entitled Going for Broke, Deficits, Debt, and the Entitlement Crisis. If you'd like to participate in or follow the conversation via Twitter, look for a hashtag goingforbrokebook. I am Peter Russo, director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and thank you all for coming today. Um, In typical fashion, the media has got us focused on the heights of sensation, sharks, shark attacks, cell phones, nuclear war, and that's just Donald Trump. Greater concern and one that's fallen out of the limelight is a story with far more serious consequences. I'm talking, of course, about our burgeoning federal entitlement programs. Uh, But before you drift off to sleep, let me alert you to a singular point. Whether you are a Republican or a Democrat and you have programs you adore or programs you would like to adopt in the future, if you have constituencies that you are committed to assisting or want to deal with national emergencies or anything else that requires federal spending, you are in for a rude shock. The simple fact is this, if left unchanged, the sum costs of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and net interest on our now over $18 trillion debt will crowd out other spending, and in short order. Just yesterday, the Social Security Administration released the 2015 Social Security Trustees Report. In short, the trustees report a sliver of success. As it turns out, the full amount of promised benefits through OASI, the Old Age and Survivors Insurance, will cease one year later than last year's report projected. But that's not because of a difficult coming together of left and right in a committed effort to restore solvency. No, it is very likely has to do with reduced spending from the Great Recession from which we are now recovering. More immediately, Social Security Disability Insurance runs out the fourth quarter of 2016, right in the middle of a presidential election. The latest fraud report on Medicare reveals that $60 billion in payments were mailed to addresses never checked. Federal investigators estimate that there are some 23,000 fake or bad addresses on the rolls. These, ladies and gentlemen, are the screams of programs needing reform and FAST. And don't think that curbing fraud, waste, and abuse alone will fix it. The sheer volume of the amount of money involved far exceeds whatever gains we can achieve by operational refinements. And that is the purpose of our briefing today, to highlight the problems of our existing regimes and to suggest solutions to avert the consequences of this impending entitlement crisis. To present the findings of his new book, Going for Broke, is Michael D. Tanner. Tanner is a senior fellow at Cato where he heads research into a variety of domestic policy areas with a particular emphasis on poverty and social welfare, health care reform, and social security. Under Tanner's direction, Cato launched the project on social security choice, which is widely considered the leading impetus for transforming the soon-to-be bankrupt system into a private savings program. Time magazine calls Tanner, quote, one of the architects of the private accounts movement. End quote, and Congressional Quarterly named him one of the nation's five most influential experts on Social Security. In addition to Going for Broke, he is also the author of numerous books, including Leviathan on the Right, How Big Government Conservatism Brought Down the Republican Revolution, and many others. Tanner's writings have appeared in nearly every major American newspaper. He writes a weekly column for National Review Online and is contributing columnist with the New York Post. A prolific writer and frequent guest lecturer, Tanner appears regularly on network and cable news programs. So he'll, t- he'll talk until about a quarter tell, and then we'll open it up for questions. So with that, let's get started and give a very warm welcome to Michael Tanner. Well, thank
1: you very much, and I appreciate all of you coming out, especially it's, it's a really beautiful day out there. We've, we've closed the blinds so you won't know what you're missing. Uh, but I do appreciate your coming out on this. And I, and I just... Sort of just to put this in kind of a little bit of a perspective before we begin, I do want to ask: Is there anyone here from the news media? Anyone? There's one. Well, I, I think that's sort of reflective of what's going on here. I, I did briefly think of calling this uh, session "What Donald Trump Thinks of Debt Deficits and the Entitlement Crisis" just to get some people to come out, uh, but but it does sort of reflect the idea that the debt problem we're facing in this country is sort of faded from the headlines. Uh, You don't hear a lot of talk about it in the media, and you don't hear a lot of talk about it from political campaigns on on either side of the aisle right now. It sort of has dropped down uh, the attention scale, if you will. And that's really a shame, because it's still out there, and it's still vitally important. In fact, uh, just about two weeks ago, the new director of the CBO was asked uh, whether or not he thought that this country could face a Greek-style meltdown uh, because of our debt. And his response was he didn't know. Uh, He didn't know whether or not we could face a Greek-style crisis or when that Greek-style crisis might hit us if it did. Uh, Now, certainly there are some significant differences between our country and and Greece. Uh, We're a much larger economy uh, than than Greece, which gives us a little more room for error, if you will. Uh, Our debt is mostly internal. About 60-some-odd percent of our debt is held by Americans. uh, whereas Greek debt is largely held by foreign banks, the IMF and the uh, European Central Bank and European governments and so on. Uh, and most importantly, we control our own currency, uh, whereas the Greeks do not. Uh, uh, they're, they're basically uh, re- responsible for whatever the European Central Bank decides to do, not what the Greek government decides to do. And we have a lot more leeway there. If nothing else, I mean, we could always devalue our currency and inflate our way out of debt. I mean, not necessarily a good idea, but it certainly exists as, as a possibility. We have a lot more freedom than the Greeks do. So no one should say that we and the Greeks are identical. But if you want to look at the underlying problem that's besetting the Greek uh, government, and most of the governments in Europe, for that matter, and the problems that we're facing, they're remarkably similar, and they stem from a simple fact that we are spending too much money, spending far more than we're taking in, running ever larger debt, and that this ultimately has an impact on the economy as a whole. So let's look into this in a little more depth, and let's actually start with some good news. Usually I'm accused of these things as being far too pessimistic and too negative and depressing, I think is the word that's been actually been used when I talk about these things. So let's start with some, some good news. This is the historical and projected deficits through this year. And what you can see is that the deficit is down, down quite a bit. In fact, it was only a few years ago we had a $1.4 trillion deficit. And this year, the most recent projections are will be somewhere in the area of around $450 billion. I mean, that's almost a trillion dollars less. I mean, you know, we should should take a little bit of... solace in that, I think. There's been some good news, and it's on a a bipartisan basis that that we've achieved this. There's a number of reasons for it. Uh, TARP uh, is long gone, Uh, basically been paid back, and particularly some of the uh, oddities and vagaries of uh, Washington accounting means that when TARP's paid back, it's counted as negative spending rather than revenue. But anyway, uh, there's that. Uh, The stimulus bill has largely run its course. Most of the spending on the stimulus bill has has played out. Uh, The sequester uh, is in place, uh, and that has actually succeeded in holding down spending, and then finally we've seen an increase in revenues because the economy has come back anemically perhaps, but it has come back to some degree, and that has increased revenues, and then of course there was also the tax increase of a couple of years ago, uh, that increased the revenue slightly as well. So you see all of that has resulted in a decrease in, uh, in the deficit. Now, you know, I mean, people could see that as half full. We're still spending $450 billion more every year than we take in. But, you know, let's face it, 450 is a lot better than $1.4 trillion. So, you know, let's give what minor credit there is to do. Uh, Now, some people have been very excited about this. Uh, Paul Krugman uh, has announced that the deficit problem solved. Uh, Nothing to worry about, Uh, nothing to see there anymore. These are not the droids you were looking for. Uh, Maddie Iglesias over at Slate says, what's sovereign debt crisis? There's no debt crisis in the United States, certainly not. Uh, and, of course, uh, when the Obama administration introduced its most recent budget, administration officials said that this budget represented an end to the age of austerity. There was no longer a need in this country to have austerity. Uh, now, I, I sort of blinked and missed the age of austerity uh, if it was out there. But, uh, but uh, whatever austerity there was, uh, we don't have to do it anymore because we've licked the, uh, the deficit problem. Well, sort of. I mean, we are better off than we were, as I said, but this is a very temporary respite. The reality is that within a couple of years, the deficit will begin to rise once more. And in fact, this is, what the according to CBO, the projected deficits that we're going to see in the future. And what you can see is we get a couple of years where it sort of levels off, and then once again, it starts right back up, and by gosh, within 10 years, uh, we're back to trillion-dollar deficits. So, uh, so, you know, sort of take, take uh, comfort while we can, because it's not going to last, uh, where it's going to go right back up to where it was uh, in the future. In fact, it actually gets much worse than that. Uh, this is the projected deficits. If you just keep on going out, uh, what you see is deficits that are clearly unsustainable. This is uh, done as... Uh, uh, in trillions of 2014 dollars, and you could have, you know, they project out there by mid-century, you're talking in, you know, four or five trillion dollar deficits, which clearly are not sustainable. But it just goes to show that if you stay on the current projected path, uh, that you're going to end up very quickly with numbers that are simply impossible. You simply cannot run deficits of that size. So something's going to have to give somewhere in the next, uh, next couple of years. And of course, even if you're not talking about deficits, which are sort of deficits, if you will, are the measure of our overspending this year. They're how irresponsible we are this year. And you can get away with being irresponsible in a given year. Or maybe there's even reasons why you should run a deficit in a given year, maybe counter-cyclical reasons or so on. So one year's deficit is probably nothing to get too excited about. But if you run deficits year after year after year, that profligacy adds up and becomes a problem, and that's the debt. The main ways you could think about it is, sure, there's, you know, if one month you have credit card bills that are too high, it's not the end of the world. But if every month your credit card bills are higher than your salary, you've got a problem. You're, just gonna, you're never going to get out of that cycle. And this is the projected debt that we face. This is actually just the public debt. It doesn't include all the debts that we face, but this is the projected public debt according to CBO. Uh, right now, it's 18.2 trillion, give or take, uh, and it's going to continue to rise. And by the end of the uh, about by 2025 or so, we're expecting to be about 26 trillion dollar debt. Uh, so the debt is just continuing to get worse in each given year, and it just continues to rise. Uh, regularly, the, And we're using this year public debt right now, but the whole debt, if you want to look at it, is right now is currently 101% of GDP. Now think about that for a minute. We actually have a debt bigger than our GDP. We owe more than we produce in this country in goods and services over the course of a year. That would be very much like, in your home budget, is if your credit card bills exceeded your entire salary pre-tax. You probably have a problem at that point. Probably need some kind of an intervention to, do, to deal with that sort of problem. And this, as bad as it is, isn't even the whole problem. But it's pretty bad. I just want to give this a little comparison put it in context here. This is our debt as a percentage of GDP compared to some of the countries in Europe. And we hear all about the debt crisis in Europe and you know, what's going on in Greece and all of that. And Greece certainly is worse. Their debt's about 180% of GDP. I mean, I'm not quite sure how they're going to dig out of there. I don't think uh, the, the latest agreement's going to get them out from underneath that kind of debt. And you have some other countries that are really in trouble, Italy and Portugal and Ireland and so on. But look, the US is right in the middle uh, when it comes to debt. I mean, you know, we're 100% of GDP. We have a worse debt currently than France or Spain. Countries that you hear about all the way in the context of the or European debt and overspending and so on, our debt is actually bigger than that of Spain or France or UK. It's bigger than the EU average. We have a higher debt as a percentage of GDP than the average <laughs> European country, Union country. So that's something that I think you know, we should be worried about a little bit. And as I say, that's not the bad news. That's sort of the good news part of the program. I'm done being optimistic. <laughs> because that debt is only part of the debt we face. There's really three kinds of government debt, if you will. Uh, there's debt held by the public, and this is securities that are hold, owned by individuals, corporations, governments, foreign governments and so on. This is you know, this is the debt. if you have a 401k program or a pension fund that's invested in, uh, in government bonds, if you owe a savings bond or something like that, you have part of this debt. You hold it. This is, this, is, this is the debt that someone else owns. And about 60%, a little bit more than that, is held by Americans in one way or another. The rest is held uh, by foreign governments. The two largest foreign governments are Japan and China. They each hold about 9% of this debt. Uh, but this is, this, this is sort of the debt. an economists worry most about debt held by the public. That's kind of the hardest type of debt. It's the debt because someone has actually has a claim on it at some point. It's a, it, it's, it's a problem because it's, or you have to pay interest on this debt. Now, right now, people are willing to lend us money at absurdly low interest rates uh, because, well, where else are they going to put it? I mean, uh, you know, you look around the world, and uh, the euro doesn't look like a pretty good bet. And uh, The ruble's not very strong, and nobody's buying renminbi these days. And uh, so, you know, we're sort of the the fastest horse in the glue factory. Uh, So people people are willing to lend us money at sort low interest rates, but, you know, we do have to pay that interest, and that interest, if it goes up, it's going to be a huge problem. Interest is already the fastest-rising portion of the federal budget, by the way. People talk about, you know, budget, what's going up, what's going down, The, the interest payments are rising faster than anything else, and they will continually squeeze out other types of spending. And interest, we don't get anything for. You know, when you pay interest on the debt, you don't build a school or a road. You don't buy a tank or an airplane. You don't even help somebody out who's a low-income person who you're trying to give the food to or whatever. You don't do any of that. You just pay interest. It's it's kind of a sunk cost for you. And every 1% that interest rates rise in the future, We'll add a trillion dollars in interest payments over a decade. So, you know, that's more lost money in the future if, if, if interest rates go up. But, so this is the type of debt that people really worry about is debt held by the public. It's also the debt that we have to compete with, the, that where the government competes with the private sector on, and therefore, you know, it can squeeze out private borrowing and so on. Uh, we have about 13 trillion right now in debt held by the public. Next type of debt is intergovernmental debt. This is debt that one part of the government theoretically owes to another part of the, debt, the government. Think trust funds, and there's also some revolving accounts and so on. The two most famous trust funds that everyone talks about, of course, are the Social Security trust fund and the Medicare trust fund. We just had the trustees report out yesterday. And by the way, these numbers does not reflect uh, some of the numbers in the trustees uh, report that came out yesterday. These are, these are from last year's numbers. Um, but there, those trust funds, there's also the Highway Trust Fund. There's a Gulf Oil Trust Fund. There's over 100, actually, intergovernmental trust funds that all have some amounts of, the, of this money. Uh, that money, of course, is all gone. Spent, what you have is essentially bonds that must be paid back at some point by the, out of general revenues. So essentially, the general revenue account owes these, uh, these intergovernmental trust funds money and about – a little over $5 trillion that will have to be paid to these trust funds. Now, they have to be paid. These bonds, uh, as I'm, I'm constantly reminded by my, my friends on the left, are you know, the safest government investment there is. The government's never been a day late or a dollar short. We'll always reimburse these bonds. So they're pretty solid, but you can play a little more games with them than you can with the debt held by the public. And the interest payments are generally made in additional bonds. It's sort of writing an IOU for the interest on the IOU, if you will. Well, about $5 trillion in that, you add that together and you end up with about our $18-plus trillion national debt that everyone talks about. <clears throat> and when the media talks about the national debt, that's what they're talking about is that $18 trillion. However, there's another type of debt that's out there, and that's the implicit debt or the unfunded liabilities that exist within programs like Social Security and Medicare. And we can look at these programs and we know what their finances are going to be in the future. You can look down the road, and you can see how much generally, it's fairly easy to predict, especially with Social Security, it's fairly easy to predict what the outgo will be. We know roughly how many people are going to be retired in a given year. We know what the law says their benefits will be. And we also can predict pretty much what the payroll tax revenue in that year will be based on the current payroll tax rates. And there's a gap between the two, between what's going out, what's coming in. And that gap will have to be paid somehow right now under current law. You're going to have to find the money to fill that gap. And the same thing exists roughly with Medicare. The Social Security if you, uh, unfunded liabilities run somewhere around $25 trillion, that's trillion with a T, dollars in that gap, $25 trillion. Lacked, according to the trustees' report last year, went up about $900 billion between last year's report and this report. Uh, so it's probably closer to t- more like 26 trillion as of this year. Now that, by the way, just for you, really, people want to get really geeky. That's discounted present value over an infinite horizon. <laughs> and what that means is if the federal government had 25 or 26 trillion right now and it could stick it in the bank and earn three percent interest forever, then it would have enough money to continue to pay Social Security benefits for as long as the program lasts in the future. Unfortunately, as you guys know, you don't have 25 or $26 trillion laying around. If anybody does, you can let me know, and, and we'll figure out what to do with it. But, uh, but uh, Social Security is that. Medicare is actually in somewhat worse shape uh, than Social Security, actually quite a bit worse shape, almost twice as bad as Social Security, nearly $50 trillion, trillion again with a T, uh, in unfunded liabilities of Medicare. That's under the most optimistic scenarios for Medicare assuming that uh, the remain that health care costs continue to to slow as they have in the last several years, uh, continues to be a uh, Medicare bill, 50 trillion. Overall you end up with about 72 and a half trillion dollars in unfunded liabilities or implicit debt that's out there. Throw in your 18 trillion that you currently have in on the books debt and you end up with a real debt of the United States of somewhere in the area of ninety trillion dollars. That's real money, uh, even for you folks. Again, putting this all in context, uh, if we look at the unfunded obligations as a percent of GDP, uh, it's about 500% of GDP for the U.S., Uh, comparing that to other countries in Europe, uh, under the same criteria, looking at their unfunded liabilities for their pension and health care systems and stuff going forward, what we find is Greece still is the worst. They're about almost 1,000% of GDP uh, that they owe in future unfunded liabilities. Uh, So uh, I'm not investing uh, in in Greek bonds anytime soon. Uh, France is now a little bit worse than us. They were better in terms of on the books debt, but they actually have a very high unfunded pension problem uh, in, in France. And that's it. We're worse than everyone else. We're worse than Portugal. We're worse than Ireland. We're worse than Italy. All these countries you hear about uh, in terms of their debt, uh, we're actually in a worse off situation uh, when it comes to our total debt than they are. Uh, you can see how much worse off we are than the average in the EU. Uh, so we're, we're sort of right along the lines of the Netherlands, uh, if you will, uh, in terms of, of debt. So that does not look very good uh, when you project this going forward. It, it is a problem, and uh, it is going to have a significant impact. Uh, It is a problem both morally and economically. It's a problem morally because debt of this nature is a particularly, I think, pernicious tax on the next generation. I mean, we talk talk about taxation without representations on all our license plates in D.C. You want to talk about taxation without representation. All of this represents future taxes that will have to be paid by generations that aren't even born yet, let alone have any vote in it. We run up this debt because we get to consume the goodies. We get to have the benefits. We get to take all the stuff that goes into running up this debt and spend it for us. And we'll take the bill, and we'll pass it on to people who had no say whatsoever in running up that debt. Strikes me as being particularly uh, pernicious when you do that. Uh, And economically. Once debt reaches this level, it begins to have a significant overhang in terms of economic growth, uh, both today and in the future. And CBO estimates that our children will end up with incomes that are $2,000 to to $5,000 less each year than they would be in the absence of this debt, because economic growth will slow in the future. So we're penalizing our kids and grandkids in two ways. We're making them pay it, and we're making them pay it out of less money. So I think that you have some significant issues that you have to think about in that regard. Well how can you fix this? We've got this problem. We're spending too much, got too much going out and not enough coming in. Pretty easy, you know, when you think about it that way. If you had that with your bank account, you'd say, okay, there's only a couple of answers. If I'm spending more money than I'm than I'm earning I got to do a couple. One, a couple things. I got to either earn more money, or I got to spend less. Well, can we solve this problem if we simply raise taxes? Well, uh, you know, we all hear a lot of you know Warren Buffett simply paid more than her, his secretary or whatever it is that's going to solve the problem all that sort of thing. I've always thought that people who wanted to raise taxes just a little bit on the rich were thinking too small. I mean, why why stop at a little bit of a tax increase on the rich? I mean, if we really want to get at this, let's take it all. So I, I think what we ought to do is, instead of raising taxes on the rich, we ought to go out and confiscate it. Let's take every penny earned by every person in America who earned a million dollars or more last year. I mean, you know, let's let us let's, let's things fall. Let's go all the way. And if we did that... We'd get this blue box right here. That would uh, that would be what we would get in terms of the money if we simply took the took everything that was owned by everybody who earned a million dollars last year. The red box next to it is our 18 trillion dollar national debt. And this orange line here, or yellow line, that's the unfunded liabilities plus the debt that we owe. That's our total indebtedness. Um, you may have noticed that even if we confiscated everything from the rich, we don't even pay off the national debt, let alone deal with the unfunded liabilities we face in the future. In fact, do you want to know what we'd actually have to do to raise taxes to pay it off? This, these numbers are actually about five, four to five years old. But, so it's gotten worse since then. But I think it's still worth looking at. This came from CBO in response to a question that Paul Ryan asked. And if you actually wanted to pay for currently scheduled spending, the current spending line, assuming you never added another new government program, just paying off what the debt we own, you'd actually have to raise both the corporate tax rate and the top income tax rate to 88% you'd have to raise the uh, 25% rate to 63%, and the bottom rate that the poorest Americans pay would have to go up from 10% to 25%. This, by the way, is just federal taxes. So you know your state and local taxes and everything will be added in on top of that. If you did that, you could pay for what we currently owe, again, assuming you never did anything else, as far as the eye can see. Um, I. I don't know about you, but it doesn't look to me like there's any possible way to tax your way out of debt. I mean, and again, all this assumes, again, this is a very static analysis. It assumes there's no dynamic effect. It assumes there's no impact on economic growth or anything from doing these things. It just assumes that you could just raise these taxes to 88%, and everybody would continue doing what they're doing now. It wouldn't, wouldn't change uh, earnings or anything like that at all. All right, well, we're not going to get there by raising taxes. What about by cutting spending? Well, clearly, and look, and I, you know, I, I work at Cato, and I'm a, I'm a good libertarian, and I believe in cutting spending. It's hard to find anything you're going to want to cut that I'm not going to be in favor of cutting. That said, I think most of the debate over cutting spending is pretty sterile up here. I mean, nobody really wants to cut the big things there's a whole list of usual suspects that we want to cut because it's popular to cut those things because they don't have constituencies for your party one way or the other or something like that. Uh, this is where we actually spend money. Uh, domestic discretionary spending. That's everything from the FBI to the FDA, Department of Commerce, Department of Education. Again, I think about doing away with these things and it's, you know, when I'm having a drink in the pool and... but. We're not going to do away with all of them, but even if you did, it's only 16% of federal spending. And defense spending, certainly, you know, I'm, I'm also believing we need to cut defense spending, but it's only 16% of federal spending. You know, people want to cut, we hear, let's cut foreign aid. Foreign aid is 1% of federal spending. Well, okay, uh, the Republicans, uh, they want to kill Big Bird and... Uh, you know, right now, the big things. we're going to defund Planned Parenthood uh, for whatever. Okay, we can have all sorts of ideological reasons why you want to do those things. Big Bird and Planned Parenthood combined are thousandths of a percent of federal spending. You're not balancing the budget and getting rid of the debt by killing Big Bird, doing away with foreign aid, defunding Planned Parenthood, or any of those usual things that you think you're doing. Where is the money, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid? They combined are almost half of federal spending. Three programs are roughly half of federal spending. They throw in interest on the debt uh, in there, uh, which you can't touch. And the the reality is that you cannot deal with the debt unless you're willing to address Social Security Medicare, and Medicaid. You have to take those on. And it's only going to get worse, by the way, in the future. Those programs are growing while domestic discretionary spending is declining. President Obama is right. He has talked repeatedly about how domestic discretionary spending as a percent of federal spending and as a percent of GDP has been declining during his administration. It's continuing to go down. The sequester made it much even go down even further as a, it's been declining as a percent of where the money is going, federal spending keeps increasing because, essentially, of these three things, those three programs, plus net interest and in the debt. They are going to continue to rise, and they are eventually going to be 60 70% of federal spending. They're also going to be such that if you keep taxes, assume taxes continue to bring in the, tradi- the historical 18 to 19% of GDP. You ultimately end up within a very short period, within a couple of decades, really, of a situation in which those three programs, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, plus interest on the debt, consumes everything that's brought in with taxes. Oh, maybe we could keep around a couple of platoons of soldiers someplace. But that's about it. Everything else you want to do, if you're a liberal and you want to spend more on education or job training or whatever it might be, if you're a conservative and you want to up the defense budget, they're all gone. Because all you're going to do, essentially, is mail checks to old people and banks. That's it. What the federal government will be able to do. So you're going to have to address this if you really want to deal with the debt. I just want to really quickly, in a couple of minutes that I have left, take you through just a couple of these programs and just show you how bad these programs particularly are. Social Security, again, this does not reflect the most recent trustees report, which made it a little bit worse. <clears throat> but this is the annual cash flow within the Social Security system. Social Security is running a deficit today. About 60-some-odd, 60, $65 billion, I believe it is, this year, roughly, yeah, that it is spending more on than it's taking in. Now, the answer is, well, not, you know, there's, there's technical accounting reasons why that's not considered a deficit because it has bo- interest, ra- interest payments and bonds that it can cash in and so on. But in terms of its actual cash flow, money in, money out, it is running negative, and it never gets better. This is not a one-time thing. This is, it never gets any better. You could, you know, we could have a lot of arguments about the trust fund and everything. I think the, tr- you know, the trust fund is largely an accounting measure, because every bond in the trust fund has to be paid back out of general revenues. So you're gonna to have to come up with the money, regardless of whether you think social security is solvent or not until 2030, I believe it is, uh, or not. You still have to come up with the money to pay it. That money has to come from general revenues. So what really counts is the cash flow. It is negative. It is never going away. And at the same time, of course, the deal for young people, just point out, keeps getting worse. People say, well, let's just raise the Social Security payroll tax, or let's extend just, just raise the retirement age or so on. You should recognize the fact that for young people, the deal they're getting back in terms of the return on the money they're paying into Social Security is just continually getting worse. Uh, and, you, and many of the solutions you're going have are just going to make that worse yet. Medicare. Uh, Medicare, as I mentioned, is even worse shaped than Social Security, almost twice as deep in the hole uh, when you look at it. And there's a good reason for that, a very simple reason. Uh, if you take an average uh, a couple, let's say a couple that are both two earners, two earners in the family, and they both earn the average wage. Over their lifetime, that couple is going to pay about $150,000 in payroll taxes, Medicare payroll taxes, and premiums. Once they get to be retirement, they have to pay a premium to the Medicare system. They, they're going to pay $150,000, which is real money for a middle-income family. They are going to collect nearly $450,000 in Medicare benefits over the course of their lifetime. That gap has to be filled by general revenues between what they pay in and what the system takes out you're losing money, basically, on every, every person you're, you know, the, every person in the Medicare system of about $300,000. Uh, so you, that's why Medicare is in as much trouble as it's in, and you've got to have to deal with that in some way. Another way to look at this, this, this chart goes back to 75, and then it projects it through to 2040, and it's both on the left and the blue lines are enrollees in Medicare. The right is the cost per enrollee uh, in the system. And what you can see is the number of, first of all, on the left, the number of people on Medicare is going up. This is a simply demographic thing. We're getting older. We're living longer. More people on the program. In 1975, there was less than 25 million people in Medicare. Uh, Today, there's over 50 million. It's doubled. And uh, by 2040, it's going to close to double again. You're going to be up to over 89, almost uh, 90 million people on Medicare. At the same time, the cost of t- treating each one of those people on Medicare has gone up. You started with a cost of under $2,000 per person for each of those $25 million. Today, you're spending over $12,000 for each of those $50 million people. And by 2040, you're going to be spending over $21,000 for each of those $90 billion people that's on the program. Medicare is one of those situations where you are losing money on each transaction— and making up for it in volume. And Medicaid, lastly, the last of these three programs, Medicaid. Uh, again, we have an increase. I, I want, actually want to throw this chart up, because I think a lot of people don't understand the Medicaid program. They think of the Medicaid program wrong. Of those three programs, by the way, Medicaid is always the least popular. And uh, you know, why? Because people think of Medicaid, Medicaid as being welfare, they think of it as this is a program for the poor as opposed to these other programs, which I paid into, I'm entitled, it's for seniors and so on. The reality is that if you look at enrollment, it is primarily for the poor in terms of who's enrolled in Medicaid. Uh, children make up about half of the people in Medicaid, poor adults are about 24%, so about three-quarters of the people on Medicaid are actually poor. But if you look to where the money is spent on Medicaid, it's not for those poor people. The money on Medicaid is paid up by two other groups, the disabled and the aged, make up two-thirds of the spending on Medicaid. This is actually elderly people in nursing homes that are collecting Medicaid, the Medicaid is paying for the nursing homes. There's a whole industry out there that exists to do nothing but to help old people shelter their income, hide their income, so that they can then qualify for Medicaid to pay for their nursing home care. I don't know if you read, if you listen to the radio as you ride into work here in the morning, here in D.C. I've been, I've been lately. There's been a law firm with a woman from the law firm, uh, Elder Law Firm, uh, advertising on the radio uh, with uh, three myths about Medicaid and things like, "Did you, you, you think you might have to give up your house if you want to go on Medicaid in the nursing home? You don't. I'll teach you how to hide that. You think you might have to." Do this or that to your income. I can teach you how to shelter your income. Uh, Well, the result, of course, is that Medicaid is now consuming an ever larger portion of the federal budget and state budgets. In most state budgets, Medicaid is now the fastest rising line item in their state budget, and it is also the largest item in their budget. It's squeezing out education, roads and bridges, prisons, and all the other things that states traditionally do. That money is simply going to Medicaid. Uh, just looking at what we're projecting, what we've been seeing in Medicaid, blue is the enrollment in Medicaid, and red is the total cost. You can see it rises with enrollment, and it also rises again with health care costs, of course, uh, as well. In the program. But it's rising rapidly, especially since about 1990, it's really taken off. We've seen a, a rap- very rapid rise, uh, regardless of administration, regardless of political party. We've seen the rise in Medicaid uh, take off through that. And then finally, the Affordable Care Act, I just want to throw this in, because having seen that we were so deep in debt, having seen that we were running, uh, spending far more than we could afford and we had all these other costs, obviously the thing we wanted to do was to create a new entitlement program that would spend more money. Uh, This is revenues and outlays on the ACA. Now this is not from CBO. This is our own estimate at at Cato that, that puts this together. And the reason is we believe that the, the CBO doesn't count necessarily all the costs afford, uh, with the Affordable Care Act. There's a lot of, for example, Im- implementation costs that are considered authorized, but not appropriated funds. They, they'll eventually be spent, uh, but, they're, but they're not included in some of the, under the, some of the estimates that are going forward. There's also some double counting that goes on. Uh, remember the famous $716 billion in Medicare cuts that we heard so much about in the, in the last election? Uh, I always thought that was a very interesting. What we had was an election where Mitt Romney, who was supposedly the Republican in favor of cutting spending, said, my god, it's terrible. The ACA cuts $716 billion for Medicare. And the president responded, no, I would never cut $716 billion for Medicare. And I thought, Medicare is $50 trillion in debt. I wish somebody would cut something from Medicare. Uh, But the reality is where both of those statements were sort of true. The ACA does cut $716 billion from Medicare. uh, But what it does is it then routes that $716 billion back through the Medicare system, through the Medicare trust fund, which allows the president to say they've extended the life of the trust fund by nine years, takes that money back out of the trust fund and uses it to spend on ACA subsidies. Uh, So you've got to technically increase solvency in the Medicare trust fund and increase the unfunded liabilities of the program at the same time. We, we, took, we extracted all of that out. There's also some things with Social Security. If the Social Security taxes actually would uh, – there's an assumption that some people would substitute wages for, for health insurance because they'd get health insurance through the exchanges. If they pay more wages, that would increase taxes, which goes into the Social Security system. There's all those sorts of, sort of games within the budget that take place. We took all of that out. And our estimate is that this will add about another trillion two to the deficit over the next 10 years if you really take into account all the, all the costs that go with that. Uh, so what, what does all this mean? I, you know, I've spent my time, my, my 40 minutes or so, giving you bad news. And I'd like to end it with a whole bunch of positive, upbeat, good news, but I don't have any. I mean, the reality is there's not an easy solution. You know, if you're going to deal with these programs, there's going to be a certain amount of pain for constituents who vote, which means your bosses are going to have to deal with some unhappy voters, and I know they'd never like to do that. But there isn't an answer... There isn't a magic bullet out there. There isn't a solution. We're not going to grow our way to solvency. We're not going to get there by taxing Warren Buffett a little bit more. And we're not going to get there by cutting Big Bird and Planned Parenthood and, and easy-to-cut suspects. You're going to have to take on popular programs. But doing nothing is not an option. Every year that you don't deal with this problem, it gets worse. As I mentioned, Social Security's problems, just by extending the, the, the timeline, went up almost a trillion dollars in terms of its total unfunded obligations. Medicare got a little bit better, but that was, that's largely due with a methodological change, not with the actual program. So every year you wait, it gets worse. So, you know, you're, and now you've got this little gap where the budget deficit's down, gives you a couple of years to work with where the things aren't as bad. <coughs> if you wait, <coughs> if you wait 10 years, we're back to trillion-dollar deficits, think of how much worse the pain's going to be then than if you try to do something about it now. And if you don't, if you just wait around, well, we know what the future is. Now, there's an old saying that says that that which cannot continue forever eventually stops. Or I think Maggie Thatcher actually put it a little bit better. She said the problem with the modern welfare state is eventually it runs out of other people's money. We're going to run out of other people's money. That's going to happen. The question is, do you start now making the changes that are necessary so that you have a soft landing, or do you wait 10, 15 years down the road until the whole thing comes crashing down and we look a lot more like Greece than we do today? Thank you all very much. I appreciate you listening to my <laughs> pessimism.